Business Books. Business Books. On The Money Show. Okay, so this is what tonight's book sounds like. It's a big one. <laughs> it's called Digging Deep, A History of Mining in South Africa. It is a hardcover tome of about 300 years of South African mining in history. It's got more than 500 pages. It's got fabulous historical pictures. It is written by Jay Davenport, who's in the studio with me this evening. And it's taken three years of your life to pull together the last... Well, I suppose you go back as far as the 1600s uh, when you look at the early, early European settlers in the Cape, and they go off and they go into Namakwaland to find copper. Um, and that was really the first commercial mining that was happening in, in, on, in Southern Africa. Uh, that's right, Bruce, um, but not necessarily the, the, the 1600s. It was, it was actually 1850 that our first commercial... 1850, the first commercial mines happened, yes. but Fundestel and those guys were sort of exploring into Namakwaland. Yes, of course. They, yeah. they, did, they did find copper, but it wasn't of a grade that they thought was economically viable. Okay, but the, but those those reserves were later exploited when transport networks were a little bit more efficient. Yes, and, absolutely, and, yes. And it became a, mm-hmm. a little bit easier to get yes. around the countryside. Um, some people might criticise this book for ignoring early um, sort of early iron smelters in in, uh, in southern Africa, maybe Mapungubwe, for example, where we know uh, mm-hmm. gold was mined and there was an artifacts trade. Why did you focus specifically on the commercial mining side as opposed to sort of more traditional mining? Well, Bruce, I'm a historian, not an archaeologist. <laughs> and the pre-colonial mining sector of South Africa is covered more by archaeologists. There is no documented evidence really about that. Mm. So I decided to um, focus my efforts on what, what is documented really. But you, but you do make reference. I mean, you do yes, absolutely. You, you pay respect, I think, to early, early, early mining activity on the African continent. Yes, I, I, I do acknowledge that there was pre-colonial coal mining, t- uh, tin mining, iron ore mining and gold mining, although gold is a little bit um, evasive. We don't have that much evidence for mm. pre-colonial mining. In terms of gold. But your background, you work for Mining Weekly. You've got a technical mining background. You're an historian who sort of writes about pipes and pumps and rigging and all of that sort of stuff. I I learned about mining through uh, my association with Mining Weekly. I am a historian. I study through UCT, English and history. So I'm more of a historian who has a love of mining and I just combine the two. And our history, our South African history, post-colonial, local colonial and post-colonial history and mining are intimately intertwined. One wouldn't have happened without the other. No, absolutely, Bruce. Um, South Africa is built on the back of of mining. If if we hadn't have discovered the the diamonds and the, the gold, we'd really be a a colonial, well, a backwater, an economic backwater, reliant on an agricultural sector of, say, sheep farming and mm. cotton and sugar. Yeah, and South Africa would never have been colonised to the extent it was. No. Uh, as a result, because here, 1855, and we discover uh, diamonds and the Kimberlite, which a little place called Kimberley, yes. um, which rapidly grows, and it, it leads to the first real commercial mining activity and the world's attention at that time is then focused on this little place in the middle of nowhere. Well, interesting you say that. Um, When we discovered diamonds, we didn't understand 
the world didn't understand the geology of diamonds. And um, before that, all the diamonds that had been discovered were alluvial, especially in, in India and Brazil. So when they were discovered here in the Kimberlite pipes that, that we know today, it was just a phenomenal discovery. And it, it took many years to actually understand the geology so so Kim, so Kimberley is actually from an historic perspective massively significant because it would have led then to a different kind of diamond exploration around the rest of the world. Oh, absolutely Bruce. Mm. So the, the diamond the diamond rush happens and people make an awful lot of money um into that uh, <laughs> into that picture step some fantastic historical figures. Tell me, so tell me some details. We know about Cecil Don Rose. We know about Barney Bonato. Uh, we know about a couple of these guys. But, but just try and paint a picture for me of this place called Kimberley by the 1870s. And you look at the, you go to the, the, the big hole in Kimberley and you see these photographs of these ants nests full of thousands of people. That must have been the most despicable place to be. Oh, absolutely. I, I believe this, the sanitary conditions were appalling. <laughs> I mean, you had... 40,000, 50,000 people living in tents in one community. And, you know, um, you have dogs and cattle and um, human excrement and food wastage all around you, all um, 24-7 really. And I can imagine it was a really, really difficult... Yet um, yet the, the potential rewards were so significant that people went into that environment, hostile, hostile environment, getting to Kimberley pre-rail, pre-internal yeah. combustion engine must have been something of a mission. I, I, th- I think to call um, the diamond rush and the gold rush a fever is is definitely accurate because, I mean, all, all sanity was thrown to the wind. You, there was no guarantees you were going to get rich from gold mining or diamond mining. And in the history shows, only a few made their millions, like Cecil Rhodes and Barney mm. Bonato. The rest left penniless, really, or, or had to become miners in, in the employ of the, like, De Beers. And also the complexity of the companies and the complexity of the corporate structures that were developed at that time, pre-computers. Um, people had, there was an enormous amount of intellectual capital deployed also in terms of the structure of that early diamond industry. Yes, no, absolutely, Bruce. Uh, and when we look at uh, places like Pilgrim's Rest, for example, yes. and Barberton, where gold is still being mined today, Pan-African resources are still mm. there, still doing uh, gold mining profitably. There's some open-cast mines in that part of the world. I mean, w- when was that? Was that in the 1860s or thereabouts? Um, also, Pilgrim's Rest is still mm. being mined today. Yes. Um, by, yes, by a company called Stonewall Mining. Um uh, Pilgrim's Rest was the first. That was 1873. Barberton uh, came later in about 1885. Interesting about Barberton is that it was the, the richest gold discovery ever in the world. We'll, we'll never match that kind of gold discovery ever. And, and was, was it richer then than the reef that was then discovered uh, 12, 15 years later, 1885, on the Witwatersrand? Yes. Well, you, you must have heard of the Sheba Reef, which is world yes. famous. The Sheba Reef literally was a nugget of gold the size of, say, a three-story building. I've actually been into the, the cavern where they, they mined out the, this nugget of gold, which was phenomenally rich. Uh, and was that one particular individual who got lucky, or did, did that, was that staked out in claims? What was the backstory to the Sheba Reef? Who profited from that? Um, uh, 
And Ed, Edwin Bray, um, a Yorkshire coal miner, actually discovered that. But he did float a company with um, with a few shareholders, namely Lionel Phillips, who came to Johannesburg. He's yes. very famous in yeah. Johannesburg. And he, he was the, the original founder of that. And, yes, made enormous amounts of money from, from that. What do we know about Mr. Bray? Because you would think that he would have the same sort of historical legacy as, as a Rhodes, perhaps. Does he have any sort of historical yeah. resonance, or did was his name sort of new to you as well? No, well, that's that's an interesting question, Bruce. I, I think like people like Cecil Rhodes have more of a prominence because of their their wider political okay. um, colonial ambitions. Um, we don't really. Bray was were just a coal miner who went in and exactly. dug out the gold. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, he didn't really found an empire or no. a, a country of his own. Yeah, and then of course we go to eighteen eighty five and to the Vardastrand. Now, is there eighteen eighty six? Eighteen eighty six. Forgive me. Eighteen eighty five. They were planning to find the gold. But, you know, <laughs> was it literally? I mean, there were prospect. There must have been prospectors who would have looked at this reef and gone, "There's got to be something there somewhere." And one of the Beatles, George Harris. Um, he stumbled. He stumbled across the first um, ore-bearing rock. Um, it, that that is fact. Is it the indisputed historical fact that it's George Harrison? Or no. is there some? Tell no, me, no, to, no, well, no. that's an old wives' tale, is it? No. Uh, well, interesting about the Vidvatsrands is that um, gold date. The discovery of gold dates back to say the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies. Blau Bank very near Rustenburg was okay. the, the first official gold mine. But it's not today considered part of the Witwatersrand because it doesn't sit on the reef. But back in the day, it was the ward of Witwatersrand. Um, okay. Yes. But um, I, there there were many chains in the link of discovery of the Witwatersrand. You have the, the Struben brothers, Fred and Har- um, Harry. After whom Struben's Valley is, is named, no doubt, yes. Absolutely. Um, you know, there are some people who would put their lives on a platter to say that they discovered the Witwatersrand. Um, I wouldn't be the, the, one of those people. Yeah. But um, George Harrison had a friend called George Walker and it's very much disputed which one of the Georges actually discovered um, the, the gold on Long Lochter. And in my book, I, I speculate that it was rather George Walker rather than George Harrison, who's actually been um, uh, he he has a memorial. He's immortalized. I mean, you, he go to, is. you go to Eastgate, there is the sculpture of George Harrison standing pick in hand, rock up in the air. Absolutely. Um, and this is the guy who discovered yes. gold. And so we've been sold a fiction, have we? Not necessarily. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not necessarily, Bruce. The, the problem with Johannesburg is that when everyone descended here. Chaos. There was absolute chaos. There were thousands of people. I mean, we don't even know how Johannesburg got its name because people were so fixated on getting the gold out of the ground. Who cares who discovered it? Who cares who who named the town? So we don't even know who Johannes was. We have an idea. Who may it have been? Um, Rissick, the famous Rissick Streets in Johannesburg, and Joubert Park. They both had um, Johannes Rissick and Johannes uh, Joubert. And... The story goes that they took the idea to to name this new mining village Johannesburg to Paul Kruger, and because Paul Kruger's middle name was Johannes, he thought this was a fantastic idea. 
at that point we will leave it. What a fabulous story, and it it's really is a wonderful tome of South Africa, not only mining history, but there's a lot of social history in there, and South Africa's history is intimately intertwined with the history of the mining industry. You can learn a lot from reading about it. Author of Digging Deep, A History of Mining in South Africa, Jade Davenport.